everybody and welcome to What's the Story podcast. It's uh, it's it's double header this week. Uh, part one has gone out, part two is now, and we are joined by our friend and yours, our man in Stockholm, the man behind the global gale, Swedish and Irish. No, try that again. Irish and Sweden. Fuck, I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm a head cold, lads. I'm done. I'm done. He's just off the boat from the World Cup. And he moved trains and everything to be with us today. And uh, I'm not introducing Graham Merrigan, of course, because he can go away from me. But I'm introducing our friend Philip O'Connor. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Do you know, lads, I'm meeting myself coming back now. I don't know where it is. I was saying uh, on when I left Doha on Sunday morning, it was 26 degrees plus. And last right. night I was doing the Women's Champions League down in Malmö, FC Rosengård against Bayern Munich, and it was minus eight. But it was minus 14 in Stockholm when I was leaving. So I, I don't know, my poor body is in bits altogether, you know, but I'm sure, uh, you know, we, we'll get through this too. This too will pass, as the saying goes. We'll, we'll try. It's, it's, uh, it was minus seven in Port Leash when I got up this morning. We're up to a balmy one degree at the moment. But I tell you, lads, I've no problem keeping warm, thanks to my new Bohemians jersey. Oh, that's majestic. Oh, that is absolutely God. outstanding. And you know what? The only thing that lifted my heart down below in Doha was a fellow. I got into the lift one day, Dan, and there's a fellow wearing the Bob Marley. You know the Bob Marley away I do jersey? Need. I know. Yeah. And, oh, God, I've never felt better. In the in all of the darkness that this World Cup has been on so many levels, and to see that then, you know, don't worry about it. Every little thing's going to be all right. <laughs> but I do have to say that I feel sorry for people like Graham who just will never know that kind of joy. No, they won't. They won't. Oh, I mean, like, I am positively toasty in this wonderful O'Neill's garment available from the Bohemians. And may I say, Dan, that you're looking very well in it. It suits you, you you know, God almighty. If you weren't married to that lovely woman already, they would be queuing up outside that microphone to to get you. It's why I have the hoodie zipped up to to stop the hordes of women that have been trying to get at me since I donned this wonderful (laughs) Bohemians jersey. Majestic, majestic. Well, he's not fighting. He's so not so fighting. now we've got rid of Graham. Yeah. <laughs> Are you all right, Meryl? Yeah, grand, yeah. Just you keep your attitude in line. Since you had your weight loss journey, your attitude absolutely is appalling at times. I think it's because you have a cold and you get a bit tetchy. Hold on, but hold on, Dan. Now, I know this is an audio format that we're doing here, yeah. but we have to, you know, it's, at Reuters, we have this thing, show them you were there, right? So I want to describe the situation for the listeners. Graham Merrow Merrigan, famed for his support of Shamrock Rovers, is wearing a black zip top, a red hat. In the background, there's a, in the background, there's a Let's red... Let's colorblind, Phil. That's navy. Oh, it looks black it looks, to me from here. And it says, love yourself today in white letters on a red background and in a black frame. Danny, I think he's trying to tell us something, but we'll wait for un- until he's ready. I don't like to out people too early, but we'll wait until he's ready. You can't make up your own narrative because it's a navy hoodie. I'm just telling the people what I'm seeing. Just telling yeah. the people what I'm seeing, Greg. And look, let's not forget that for years, Merrow was out there pushing in that subliminal message through his red and black wheelchair. This is true. He had the Bose wheelchair for many years. I think he's just, you know, I, I don't know what, what it is. I think he just got the idea in school that the wrong people were cool. And now he's just afraid to back down, Dan. But you know what? That's okay. We're forgiving. You know, every day is a new day. Every day is a school day. I, I, I guarantee you one day, Meryl's going to put into the WhatsApp group that he's drinking a herbal tea. And that's when we'll know. That's when <laughs> that's, we'll know. That's going to hit that. That's either that, full wanker. <laughs> either that or a picture of an IPA on a Friday night going, is four degrees the correct temperature for this? And then <laughs> yes. we'll know. Absolutely. That's it. Um, Philip, it's, uh, thanks very much for, for taking time as always to chat to us. And uh, as I said, you're, you're just back from Qatar where you're recovering the World Cup. Talk to us. How was it? Did your budget um, not last to the final, Phil? 
Uh, well, no, unfortunately, um, I tend to last slightly longer than England, usually about a day longer than England, but then usually at the quarterfinal stage, I go home. Because when I came home, lads, there was like 60 games had been played by the time I got on the plane. So there was only the two semifinals, the third and fourth place playoff and the final left. Now, you know, that's no consolation to Harry Kane, but it is a consolation to me. Because what happens is you start with a huge amount of journalists and then gradually more and more people go home. And unfortunately, we have both the blessing and the curse of being from the Republic of Ireland. And there are English people and French people... Not so much English people, but certainly French people and Argentinians who are of more use there now than what I am. At the moment, I was like an Ashtray on a motorbike over there. So I always usually make it to um it's like to the quarterfinal stage, and then I usually head out after that. But it's a huge thing. And the reason that I was talking to both of you is about this is because it doesn't matter. You can only write so much. You know, at some point you have to sit down and talk to people about it just to try to put across the scale of what it was that we saw, what was right about it, which was a few things, what was wrong about it, which was an awful lot. So that's why, you know, I thought, I mean, you know, the only way to do that is to come on an award-winning podcast with two professionals like yourself, or one and a half professionals like yourself, Dan and Mero, and to talk a little bit about it, you know? So, I mean, <clears throat> the first part I suppose I'd say about it is that we always hear a load of stuff about these things before you go, right? And it was the same thing in Russia and it was the same thing in China and your phone is going to be hacked and they'll probably kill you and, you know, you'll never be seen again and kiss your children goodbye and all that kind of thing. Basically, arriving in Doha was like arriving in a video game, right? And you start to realize the scale of this thing. 220 billion euros and you can see where they spent it because it's like climbing into the set of Grand Theft Auto, right? And somebody described it to me as an architectural arms race. And that's not just the eight football stadiums that the games were played in. It's everything. The National Museum, if you go and Google it in Doha, a phenomenal looking building. Every office block, every hotel, everything that's been built since they were awarded the World Cup in 2010 was absolutely staggering. But the more time you spend there, the more you see the dirt under the fingernails of the place, right? And this is the thing that there's two sort of parallel World Cups going on. One is for the millionaires and the billionaires on the field and off the field, the men playing in it and the men who bought it. And the other is, you know, to me, I keep calling it the gulf between the haves and the have-nots, which is absolutely enormous. So I've seen in the last few weeks guys driving up in Land Rovers in these white robes. They're called Tobes, and you'll never see a crease in them, let alone a speck of dirt on them. And they drive up in a, in a Range Rover that costs more than my house. And the door will be opened by a fellow who earns a euro an hour and works 12 hours a day. And if he's lucky, he might work an hour or two less on a Friday. And that, for me, was what I left it with. That, you know, this world that we have built for ourselves now, because this is the perfect World Cup for our modern world, lads. This is exactly what we deserve. Because it was so unbelievably crass in many ways. You know, these beautiful stadiums, money no object. Oh, that's a problem. Fix it. Throw money at it. Build that metro. Build that hotel. And yet the people whose blood and sweat and tears that uh, this is built in uh, built in and built upon are just disposable at the end of the day. Phil, um, did you feel bad at all going over? Um, I t- well, in a way, Graham, I did, because I went through a long process before I chose to go over, right? Because you don't go there, you know, just thinking to yourself, right, well, I go there, it'll be, it'll be good crack kind of thing. That's never the way I approach these things. I always go there thinking, okay, will I be able to do the kind of work that I want to do? Will I be able to talk to people? In Qatar, the answer to that is a resounding no. It's extremely difficult. There's no freedom of speech in Qatar, and I'll get into that more in a second, right? But still, there are things that you can do. There's, there's still issues that you can raise. I spoke to an awful lot of people. As the, the two of you well know, I work a lot with women's football. That's what I was doing last yeah. night. As soon as I came back on Sunday, towards the night, I was down covering the Women's Champions League for UEFA between Rosengård and Bayern Munich. 
And there's an awful lot of players in that, perhaps more so than many other sports. There's an awful lot of gay players there. And you couldn't have a Women's World Cup in Qatar because homosexuality is illegal. Punt. Like, end of story. Full stop, right? And two of the players that I know who play for Sweden are actually, they live together. They're, you know, they're, they're a couple. And I asked them and I asked many other footballers, would you think less of me for going here because of this? Because this is the way this place is. And some of them were said, well, you know, it's not a great idea. It's not a great idea to have a World Cup there at all. Some said, no, I, I wouldn't go myself, but I think you should go to try to tell these stories. And the same thing when it came to migrant workers and that kind of thing. I spoke to people from Amnesty International. I spoke to soccer players, one of whom captained uh, his national team of the Euros in recent years. I spoke to as many people as possible to try to work out if morally this was the right thing to do or not. And I know that there are people who chose not to go. Ben Scott, who works at Sveriges Radio, the Swedish equivalent of... Um, of uh, RT Radio there. He decided not to go and I absolutely respect that decision. But in the end of the day, I decided that it was better for me to go there and try to see what I could do than to sit at home and maybe not tell some of the stories that would otherwise have been told, right? So when I spoke there about this being a very difficult World Cup, there's no freedom of speech in Qatar, right? You have an emirate there and he decides, like, he decides everything. He's the one who causes shots. There's no democracy. There's no votes. Um, what we're doing is we're having a World Cup in a country which has about 3 million people, only 300,000 of which are 10% are citizens, right? You can't marry into it. It's very, very difficult to get Qatari citizenship, if not impossible. Even if you're born there, there's no guarantee of it, right? So you're going to a place which is completely different from anything that we would understand as being, you know, almost a civilized society. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a rule of law, but the rule of law applies to some people and not to others. So when I went there to try to find out, <clears throat> a lot of what annoyed me about this, lads, was that a lot of journalists went down there, they're covering the football and they're covering the football and they're covering the football. And then all of a sudden, when there was two days off, they wrote a little bit about migrant workers. And then when the football started again, well, then they went back to the football. And I was trying not to fall into that trap that, you know, the, the fate of the migrant workers was going to be something that was going to be shoehorned in, you know, when we'd nothing else to write about. So I went well, out on well, match well, day. Phil, sorry, sorry to cut across yeah. you. But you. Were you tasked by your editor to go over there and like you were there to cover the sport? Yeah. So who, who was giving you the green light to cover the human interest stories? Well, so, so this is the way it works, Graham. Basically, in this World Cup, we have everything is in the same city. So normally you will go to a World Cup. I've been to a, Sochi for a World Cup, and there might be maybe five or six games that take place there. And you have match day minus one and match day minus two, the days before your matches. And then you try to fill them with interviews or features, that kind of thing. It was difficult this time around because it was literally matches every day, right? But still, I tried to fit in these different stories from outside of it. Occasionally about migrant workers. I did another story about how women actually felt safer because there's no alcohol on general sale in Qatar. So they felt that it wasn't as, as you know, you didn't have this testosterone and this alcohol fuel thing that often goes on at football tournaments. So I'm sure you've both seen, you know. So I would go to them each day. We would send a note to the news editor and say, look, I have this match at this time. But my notes always had a but, right? It's but I'm going to talk to this person. But I'm going to go to this place. But I have no match today. So I'm going to go and watch matches with the migrant workers out in a place called Asian Town, which is about 10 kilometers outside the city center. I'm going to go there. I'm going to eat with them. I'm going to sit down with them. I'm going to talk to them, right? So that was the thing that I didn't have to ask for permission as such. I'm, I'm that long in the tooth now that they know that if I go out, I'm going to come back with something, you know. So for a younger or less experienced person, it might have been difficult to do. But they give me that headroom. They give me that space to go and do those sorts of stories if I can come up with them. Very good. So, but you, you said something there, Phil, and it's just that, that freedom of speech thing. Because we've seen, you know, and look, obviously, look, the... the the build of the tournament and the, the constant questions around it and the you know like it shouldn't be held there all that kind of stuff we everybody knows that and there's been a lot of anger from people and, and all kinds of things and 
when you said about there's no freedom of speech and that kind of thing, we something as simple as you know I can't. I think you you were one of the people to tweet about it, or maybe you retweeted it, but I, I saw it on my timeline anyway. Of um, I think it was a journalist or a photographer who had a rainbow lanyard and yeah. refused entry due to the, the the rainbow symbol and whatever. So it's even symbology that they, they, they clamp down on. It seems like so yeah. how. We we've seen a couple of moments of defiance, and um, you know some people did manage to get rainbow flags in the stadiums and that kind of thing. And uh, but but like, how much of it did, did you see, if anything, in terms of those acts of civil disobedience or whatever? Well, you see, it's really really difficult, Dan, to do anything in that country, right? Mm. It's one of the most. Um, you know, it's one of the most surveillance-intensive countries that you can go to, right? China's another one. I was there in February, you know, so there's no real difference between the two. I walked past uh, the ski jumping venue at the Beijing Olympics. I walked past a room that I shouldn't have walked past, and that was where the security center was, and I've never seen so many screens hanging up on the walls I did there, right? Qatar, there are security cameras absolutely everywhere, but it's quite understated in its own way, right? So the cameras are absolutely everywhere. So people know that they're being watched. But when I went out to speak to migrant workers in Asian town, about 10 kilometers outside the town, and there's a cricket stadium there, lads. Again, go find it on Google Maps. FIFA turned that into a fan zone as a thank you, in inverted commas, to the workers who built the World Cup. What they actually wanted to do was they didn't want people talking to them. They didn't want regular football fans from Argentina or England or Wales talking to them. So they built this with huge screens, fantastic screens. You can see way better than what they had in the regular fan zones because they did want those people downtown interacting with people so when i went out there um i thought okay i'm going to co- talk to these people but then you quickly realize that every 10 or 15 meters in the cricket stadium there's a person wearing a vest or a police uniform who's going to speak to me in front of them who's going to say to me i've been exploited here i can't wait to get out of here i wish i had the money to go home and sure enough the people who spoke to me on camera uh, all said the same thing. There's all, you know, we're hoping for work in January. We're hoping that we can stay here. We've been treated very well. It's hard work. It gets very hot, but we're delighted to be here, et cetera, et cetera. But the moment you got away from the security guards and the police and the people who were looking over their shoulder, and you had to do that very discreetly, right? Um, that was when they told you the proper stories about how they were being exploited, how those people there ripping them off, right? Saying, mm-hmm. I can get you to Canada. I can get you to Croatia. I can get you to Portugal, right? They would talk about those things then. One man st- stood and spoke to me wearing a mask because he didn't want anybody to see him speaking to me, right? But he told me some stuff. He was from the Kenyan community there. And he told me some of the things that happened in the stadiums there, right? And the other thing is that when I went over there, I'm extremely conscious, not of my own safety, because I know that I'll get through it somehow. I've been doing this a long, a long, long enough now to know what I'm doing, right? But I can't put other people into danger, into danger, yeah, right? Yeah. And that's why I didn't write anything at all, nothing about the LGBTQ plus community over there at all, because I couldn't. Because if I was to go looking for them, if I was to go to, and I know there are places where gay people gather in Doha, and somebody follows me or somebody sees me or somebody sees somebody else speaking to me, I could be endangering that person's freedom. I could be endangering that person's life, right? And I cannot, it's not morally acceptable for me to do that just because I think that this is a story to tell. So I had to walk away from those stories because there was no safe way, not for me to tell it, but for those people to tell me those stories. And that to me, when you zoom out a little bit now, lads, if you think about everything that FIFA has done, in terms of the concessions that they have gotten from the Qatari state, everything is in terms of migrant workers and nothing, absolutely nothing for gay people, for trans people, for any LGBTQ plus person at all, zero. 
right? Not even a rainbow flag. And one of the people who got stopped, Lord Reston, was Grant Wall, who mm. went in with a, a T-shirt. His brother, Eric, is gay, passed away at the Argentina-Netherlands game, the last game that I covered on site there. And he did that, and he was stopped, and he was detained for an hour. One of our lads, and this has nothing to do with reporting, one of our lads had a busted ankle, and he had a boot on one day, you know, one of these plastic boots that you put yeah. on to get to give it stability. That took it off, tried it out, and then we ended up walking so much that he had to put the boot back on the next day. And the police hauled him in for something as simple as that because they thought he was trying to smuggle something into the stadium, you know. So, this is the kind of society that you're working in. So, you know, if you were to ask me, Graham, because you and I have spoken about this privately as well, if you were asking me, did we succeed in the media and doing the things we went there to do, I'd have to say no. Because yeah, I would have loved to have been able to tell those stories and to illuminate those things. But the conditions have to exist for me to be able to do that safely. And again, not for me, but for the people whose stories need to be told. But it proves that the conditions aren't safe. But like, I mean, Qatar was awarded the World Cup when? In 2014, 2012? 2010. 2010. So that's, what, 12 years ago? Um, I mean, why wasn't there a concerted movement to get, to get rid of... T- to get them stripped of the World Cup back then. Um, I mean, I, re- I remember when they were awarded it and it was like, holy shit, because the UK had a huge bid. I think USA at the time had a huge bid. And I mean, it's 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 almost like on the lead up to the World Cup that it just crept up. It was mm-hmm. just like, holy shit, there's been years of, not forgetting, but maybe years of ignorance that, oh, the World Cup is in Qatar. And then there was even up until, I remember around COVID, around like two, early 2001, people were still speculating that the World Cup won't take place in Qatar. Mm. There's no way it's going to take place. No way it's going to take place. Now we have the final coming up on Sunday. I mean, it, everyone can agree it shouldn't have been held there for all the reasons you've listed. Let me, but, let me stop you there, Graham. Yeah. Let me stop you there, right? Everyone can't agree on that. And this is the problem, right? Mm. So there was one day, you know, the, the one love armband thing. Jesus, it seems yeah. like ages ago now, doesn't it, lads? Yeah. The one love armband was a thing between, I think it was nine European countries who wanted to wear this as a sign of solidarity for equality for gay people and, and queer people in general, right? And then FIFA came and they actually went to, this happened with England. I've done an awful lot of digging into this. Um, they, It happened with England. FIFA sat down with England and said, okay, you wear that armband, there's going to be sporting sanctions. And England asked, well, what? And they go, well, could be bookings. You know, we don't know yet, but it's going to be fairly severe. And every single one of them climbed down, right? And when we started to talk about that, uh, I went out to see the Danes, I think it was on the Monday or the Tuesday there. They had a press conference at two o'clock because they were up in arms. And I know for a fact that within the camp, within the Danish camp, there was murder because people were saying, just take the fucking yellow card, right? We have to mark this, right? But there was nine European nations and there was 32 teams competing. And what we tend to forget is that a lot of those countries don't have the same problem that we Westerners have with Qatar, right? So people in Morocco might have different sympathies, not to say that they would agree or disagree. They would see things differently. Iran, certainly on a regime level, would see things entirely in Qatar's favor when it comes to to queer people, right? Same thing with Saudi Arabia. So there isn't, it was never a unanimous thing, Graham, that this would happen, right? But I'm sitting there and I've listened to these idiots for the last seven years telling me, right, or eight years, since 2014, 2015, the Nordic FA has decided that they were going to have uh, what they call oh, influencing on site, right? So they were going to pay visits to Qatar and they'd be shown all this and shown that and, oh, this has changed and that's changed. And, oh, look how, you know, the, the five-star accommodation we have for the migrant workers and everything else like that, right? And it's just nonsense. And I'm in the middle of sitting there listening to these idiots 
defending that process one last time and I'm running out of patience. And in the middle of it, just after two o'clock, you can hear the call to prayer from the local mosque near where the Danish training centre was. And that for me summed up everything, right? We're sitting here with our Western notions of human rights and what we think is right and wrong. And then the call to prayer comes and said, lads, you know, it's like that line from um, The Wizard of Oz, you're not in Kansas anymore, Toto, right? And the whole thing was lost not the moment that Qatar was offered the World Cup or was told you can stage the World Cup. The moment their application was dropped in the letterbox was the moment it should have been killed, right? In 2008, 2009, we should have said, look, there has to somehow be a standard, right? They talk in the Premier League about, you know, a fit and proper persons act for, for whoever's going to own or control a football club there. But what I realised over this time was that we need to have a standard and it could be the UN Declaration of Human Rights. It could be anything. It could be something the FIFA work out by themselves, but I wouldn't trust them as far as I control them. But we need to decide what's acceptable and what's not. And if that means then that we have to split if that means not having a World Cup until we can agree on these things, because there's a good few other countries, you know, like Guantanamo Bay is a stain on, on the history of the United States of America, and they have 2026 coming up. And I'm not trying to generalize, and I'm not trying to, you know, there's no moral relativism here, right? But I think we all need to look at the splinter in our own eye, or the log in our own eye before pointing at the splinter in Qatar's eye, because none of us are innocent. But that means that none of us, None of us should be holding these things until we can reach that standard when it comes to equality and when it comes to fairness for labor and when it comes to you know equality between women and men and for queer people as well. So there's a huge discussion to be had around that. But by the time it came to 2014, and I think COVID was a blessing in a way, Graham, because it happened with the World Cup in Beijing. In one way, it meant that they could close the whole down the whole thing down. You literally couldn't get out to talk to people there because God knows I tried. And the same thing here then that maybe we lacked any sort of a unified opposition, any sort of a unified way of approach. This and let's not forget they spent 220 billion, you know, on the infrastructure and staging this World Cup, and a lot of that money 20, 20 million per year, 200 million over 10 years, uh, going to David Beckham. You know, you know, here's one icon. A lot of money went to Leo Messi from Qatar and from Saudi Arabia to be a sort of a, a, an influencer there as well. So, we are also subject to a campaign by these states and it is sports washing and it is like you know the fact that Qatar is on the front of Barcelona's jerseys and they own PSG and all this kind of thing it's all part of the same process and we had to be very wary and I'm still trying to be wary of not being a sort of a useful idiot for these things you know because mm. you see what you're being shown you see what you're allowed to see but every time you do that you have to second guess what it is you're being shown and how you're framing it then I would be I found the Qatari people extremely generous and extremely genuine. I found that they don't like football at all. Many of them said to me, I'm not interested in football, but we're delighted to see so many people here. Because the victory for them is, you know, in a country with the number of citizens is only slightly more than the population of the greater Limerick area. And they got the stage of World Cup to put themselves on the world stage simply because they can afford it, you know. So all of these questions... We've had no answers out of this World Cup whatsoever. Well, what we have is a shit ton of questions now that we need to ask ourselves as an international community, as a sporting community, and as sporting fans about how we're going to do this. Because if we don't, we're going to be back there in 2030 in the winter and we're going to be having a World Cup in Saudi Arabia. So, it's a huge amount to digest in this, right? But to, to go back to the, the, the one love armband, right? And the, the, the sporting sanctions and bookings being the thing that stood out and the whole idea of, you know, Harry Kane et al. and Virgil van Dijk and, and all these others opting to to bend the knee to what FIFA are saying because they didn't want to risk a yellow card in the opening group game. Right? And I'm looking at it and I'm sort of saying, it's a World Cup, right? You get a yellow card there, you potentially pick up a yellow card and then you have to miss a match. Okay, right. Like In one sense, yeah, but equally, 
stop just let's stop for a second because when you go back to the Premier League or when you go back to La Liga or Bundesliga or wherever you know the Rainbow Laces campaign is going to be there you're going to have your let's kick it out campaign you're going to have all these other things that you're going to you know jump on board with but how are you going to be able to do that with a straight face given the opportunity that you had to actually make a, a really strong stance and you buckled at the mere threat of a yellow card. <laughs> it, it it baffles me beyond belief that, that that is what ultimately killed any momentum for a global stage to sort of say, you know, and don't look, I, I understand there's different cultures in the world. The way we see things in the West isn't the way it's seen in certain other countries and all that kind of thing. But the bare minimum that that human to human you can expect is to to live and love and just let it be kind of thing, you know? I don't think anybody's looking for regime change as such. Maybe they are. I, I wouldn't go that far. I'm just looking for people to be able to walk down the street holding hands with their boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever they choose to do so, and not be risking their life to do that. It was but, a pathetic but, sanction from FIFA, wasn't it? Like, I mean, but, they they, I mean, they have to answer that post-World Cup. Do you know what I mean? They, like, and Phil, it's something I never considered when you, when you, rightfully cut across me and said about nine countries of the 32 are in Europe and, and those nine countries live, you know, their society pretty much identical. Um, and, you know, there's African countries that, that aren't, they wouldn't be into LGBT community, definitely Middle Eastern countries wouldn't be. So, I mean, are we just being uh, almost patronising to, the whole cities are, we have to remember FIFA is a European, was formed in Europe and it's, it's a, it's a European company, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so it, 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 there's, it raises a lot of questions for the future. And I completely agree with you in, in regards to the U S and Guantanamo Bay and, and their involvement in, in South America, uh, queues and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's, it's, has this always been? Because I do remember me and Dan ahead uh, of the Russian tournament, and we were kind of privately saying, you know, this is mad, you know. But I don't remember whether, you know, the way you had, as Dan said, a, a journalist or somebody uh, with a with a pride lanyard was refused admission. Mm. I don't remember those stories from the Russian World Cup, but we all know that the Russian authorities don't really respect gay people. Yeah, and it's been getting worse in recent years, lads, especially in Russia, you know. But I think it's it's much easier with Qatar because we don't know them, right? And this yeah. this is one of the things that the thing that makes it mo- most difficult is nuance, right? It's always extremely difficult that, you know, and again, let's state it for the record, this never should have happened, right? Screw the football. Screw if Leo Messi wins, you know, for the first time, gives us all the finish that we want, or if Mbappe wins a second World Cup at the age of 20. Screw all that. This never should have happened. Let's get that out of the way right now, right? But then when it is happening, you have to ask yourself, okay, what are we allowing to happen to the game of football here, which we all own, right? If we don't turn on our TVs and if we don't go and buy the replica jerseys like that beautiful one that Danny Murray is wearing now, like football is nothing without fans. It literally is nothing without fans. We saw that during the pandemic, right? But what are we prepared to sacrifice for that, right? And when you see things like, you know, the Champions League getting bought up by Gazprom since the 90s, you know, Russian energy company, and then all of a sudden, you know, when a war happens, well, then all of a sudden they're the wrong people to have on there, you know? Mm-hmm. And these are really the discussions that we need to have. And, you know, Russians are were sort of, you know, always seen as being fellow Europeans, right? So we'd have a crack at them in the same way that we'd have a crack at the Poles and the Hungarians and some of the Balkan countries when they, you know, make maybe racist chants from the terraces or when they do anti-LGBT stuff from the terraces 
this and that kind of thing. But for some reason, it's always easier for us to have a go at Iran or a Middle Eastern country over that, right? Now, I maintain... I feel really sorry for Simon Kjaer, who's the Denmark captain, played in the first game and they came off then after about an hour and that. And I, I, I've i been on and off. I've interviewed him after games for many years. Right? He was the one who got the most applauds after Christian Eriksen's collapse because he came over and yeah. took control of the situation on the pitch. With AC lads. Milan, isn't he? Uh, at AC Milan, yeah. Good friend of Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Circle the lads around and everything else like that so that Christian could have the privacy no matter what was to happen. Knows the bloke well. This is one of his best friends in the team. And the idea that you could tell, Simon, don't wear this armband, I just know. Now, I haven't asked him, so I can't say with any certainty, but I know in my heart that he's going to go, this is bullshit, lads. Surely, surely we can do this. And if we're to be in a place like Qatar, and if we're to, you know, to appreciate their hospitality, that's one thing. We have to respect their traditions. Of course we do. We have to respect the fact that it's a Muslim country, but we don't have to respect their attitude towards human rights for our queer brothers and sisters, right? That under no circumstances is that stance to be respected. No more than it's acceptable for Iran to be executing protesters. It's not acceptable to say that queer people don't exist, that they don't have a right to exist, and that they don't have the right to love who they want. Those two things are exactly the same, right? So you and I, Graham, can differ on many things, not least Danny's lovely jersey, right? But we do it in a respectful way. We'll ha- and that's one of those things that there's absolutely no middle ground between the two of us on. But we have to find some way of coexisting. And that means then that, you know, if Moroccan fans are to be allowed to fly a Palestinian flag, which almost never happened, you know yourselves what will happen in UEFA if you do that at Celtic Park or if you do that mm-hmm. at, you know, uh, St. Pauli or something like that. You know yeah, the even, UEFA. Even an Oriole Park in Dundalk, they got fined for... Yeah, exactly, for the same place. thing. But that's acceptable in the World Cup, but a rainbow flag isn't, right? And this is the the, the extreme difficulty that we're into now because Elon Musk and freedom of speech and all these things. Again, I feel that we need to have certain things. Like We have to set the bar somewhere and that can't be fluid. We have to say, look... We cannot go below this. And that has to be, you know, for, for minority rights, for migrant rights, for labor rights. You know, it might be when it comes to do with ticket prices, it could be to do with accessibility, it could be to do with all those things. But without that, you leave a gray area in which these forces can work. And the other end of it is it's just too big. It's just it's worth yeah. so much money now. And the problem is that everybody has a price. And your price might be if you're in FIFA that it might be a million quid in cash, right? But your prize, your prize might also be an under twenty one World Cup in Dublin or in Cork or in Limerick. It might be okay. Well, you know, five hundred thousand in cash and a training centre in Belfast, or it might be, you know, it could be all of these things. So I'm not necessarily saying the people who are involved in making the decision were putting money in their own pockets, but you, I can't see a situation whereby FIFA would have said, "Oh, you can't wear the armband and you're getting nothing for it." I think that there's going to be a debt that'll be repaid there somehow. It's like Budweiser, for instance. A couple of days before the tournament, sorry lads, you won't be selling beer tents near the stadium because it's a Muslim country. It's just not the done thing. So Budweiser had like seventy-five million dollars worth of beer in country. That they couldn't sell. Now, they're not going to just accept that. And whether it be by the courts or by arbitration, they're going to get that money back. They're going to get whatever value they think it is that they have paid for back out of it, right? Those things are going to happen. But that will most likely happen behind the scenes, you know? And this is the hard part of it because... Football is, is a product, absolutely has become a product. It's the Premier League is a product, the League of Ireland, yeah, how many times you hear it referred to as a product, the product isn't good enough, et cetera, et cetera. Right? That's what it has become. But it's no ordinary product. 
This is something that we all own. Those lads who go out there representing those 32 countries, they're representing me and you and every Argentinian, every French kid in the Bonniers of Paris, every kid who played like, you know, in, in, in Denmark, in Copenhagen, in all these places. They're going out there to represent us in international football in a way that's almost impossible at club level because you're only representing your local community. And then surely we have to have a say Surely, like, you know, and we can't be left to people in the football associations because God only knows, you know, and we know as Irish people better than most how this works. When you give it over to them, they're just, they'll find some way to fuck the thing up, you know? And this is what I'm missing here now is that if we're going to reclaim the game from these people, it's going to require an awful lot of soul searching and saying, you know what, maybe the highest bidder isn't the best idea. Maybe we need to see to what's best for the game. And to be honest... I'm delighted for the people of Morocco and the people of Saudi yeah. and the people of, of Iran, particularly Iran, who take so much joy, not from their government, but from their national team, lads. I'm delighted that they got a World Cup in their backyard. I wish it had been in a place that was better suited, that had a better record for human rights and for migrant rights and for LGBTQ plus rights. Right? I wish it had been that. We're not there yet. I wish in the absence We're not there of that, yet with any Middle Eastern country, are we? But that's what I'm saying. Well, I mean, Israel will claim to be the only democracy in the Middle East and they don't have a great record either, Graham, right? So this is the point I'm making is that we all still have an awful lot of work to do, right? And before we go around beating our breast about it, we weren't the best at it in Ireland until very recently. We may be the only or the first country uh, to have legalised um, gay marriage through a popular vote, right? But still, our history isn't great on that front. And to me, what it came down to, lads, was that... When you know this idea of the West against everybody else, right? When we go in there and just go, no, that's wrong. You have to change. The whole Middle East goes, get bent, right? We're not listening to this. Don't come here and tell us what to do. But when you talk to people, when you meet people and you talk about these things and you say, look, so much money has been spent. These lads are earning a euro an hour. Would it kill you to pay them too? You know, the like the, the minimum wage that they managed to get in there in Qatar is less than 300 euros a month. It's around about 280 euros a month. Uh, the average wage, or sorry, the average income for a Qatari household is somewhere between 20, 20 or $25,000 a month, right? If you're a Qatari citizen, that's what you earn. So that's $24,300 more or $700 more than what the lad out in Asian town living six or eight to a room is getting or what your Uber driver is getting, right? Can we talk about that? Can we talk about maybe how the people who built this, you built them a fan zone, that's great, but can you give them 500 euros before they head back to Uganda or to Nepal or Bangladesh? Can you take something that's in Qatar and invest that money in the villages that they come from? Because the absolute worst of it, lads, and I remember like it was like being hit in the face with a hurley the first time somebody said it to me. I was sitting in an Uber and this bloke was telling me about how he hadn't seen his wife and children for three and a half years. And he'd seen it out the pandemic over there. And the same man had bought a car, a car for about a thousand euros to, to be an Uber driver, right? And he thought, I'm going to be my own boss. Because this is what we tell people. We tell people that being an entrepreneur, that own your own business, that's successful. He spent a thousand euros on a car and after five weeks, the fucking car died, right? And he borrowed money off every relative he had back in his, his village in Bangladesh. So now he has no car and a debt to the whole village. That means he can't go home, right? And even if he could, he can't afford to because he sends the money home to his wife and child. His wife, told, he told me, was illiterate and his, his daughter is going to be illiterate because he can't afford to send her to school yet. He can't afford to bring them there either. And then, lads, he says to me, I'm one of the lucky ones. And I'm sitting in the backseat of the car going, if what you told me is just true there, Chief, you are by no means lucky. He's going, hang on a second. If I was still in that village, I'd either be unemployed 
or he'd be getting maybe 40, 50 euros a month. He said, here, I work me bollocks off, but I can send, you know, 50, 60 euros a month to my wife so that she has it slightly better. Still can't afford to send the child to school every day, but they have it slightly better than if I was living at home and either unemployed, there's no being on the doll, either unemployed or doing seasonal work there. And this is the mind-blowing thing about it, lads, is that the Qatar World Cup is not the disease, right? The Qatar World Cup is the abscess on the body of work that we've created in this society, right? The fact that we've cheapened everything to the extent where we just don't want to pay for anything. We don't want to pay for a taxi so we get an Uber. We don't want to pay for, you know, a proper chef to make a dinner so we go and get McDonald's. All of these things are in together. And this man is lucky. And all those, because all those lads are there for a reason. They're there because they're going to make more money in Qatar. However hard and however difficult and however exploited one is, it's better than being where they come from. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of dumbstruck by that in a way, Phil. Um, it's but Daddy, let me put it in context for you, right? And this is why I think we as Irish people have a responsibility to the people who are working in Qatar, not the Qatari citizens, but a responsibility to the people who are working in Qatar, because this is our living memory, right? Mm. This is what we did from the time of the famine. And to the time of the, you know, the waves of emigration in the 50s, in the 70s, in the 80s, and in 2010. Now, by no means am I comparing the suffering and the exploitation of the people in Qatar at the moment with the people who left Ireland for Australia and for Canada in 2008, 2009, 2010. Those two things are incomparable. But the driving forces are the same. These are people who went to a different country in the hope and in the dream of a better life for each other. And if Irish people cannot understand that in the simplest possible terms, then I have failed and every single journalist who has been to Qatar has failed. Because the story of this World Cup, lads, is not the story of Messi, and it's not the story of Mbappe, and it's not the story of the Grand Theft Auto skyline. This is the story of a world that is ripe for exploitation. And that exploitation, it's not just tolerated, it is celebrated. And until we see that being discussed, I mean, who have we become? Have we forgotten Ellis Island? Have we forgotten all the people that died on their way to Ellis Island in the hope of something better? Because those people now aren't Irish. Those people now don't have white skin and freckles. They have brown skin. They have black skin. They have curly hair. And they come from villages in Kerala in India. They come from Nepal. They come from Bangladesh. They come from Uganda. They come from Kenya. Because they have the English language, which is spoken far more than what Arabic is. And they are us but a few decades later. And until we can see that as being the modern story of it and really activate that, that memory, that collective memory that we all have, that's where we will find our side. That's where we will find our dog in this fight. And again, it, the, the failure of it only struck me when I left there because that was what I was left with, that these people are exactly the same as you and me and Graham, working class people who simply want to leave a better world for <laughs> the children than what they themselves experienced growing up. Absolutely. It's uh, like, I, it's weird because like you hear about some of the things and you, we've all heard the stories and the build up to treatment of migrant workers and all that, but it's the, it's when you hear the real human element of it that it brings it home. And when you're talking about that chap who he considers himself, look, despite everything, he considers himself lucky. And that to me, I'm like. Lucky to be alive. More or less, like I mean, it's 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 dumbfounded me in a way. Like, I'm just sitting here and I'm like, I don't all those issues, everything that you've talked about there, Phil, and and points you've made that are completely brilliantly brilliantly made points. But I just I'm I'm stuck on this point of 
how how do you break the circle? How do you break the cycle? That guy thinks he's lucky. So in a way, he's almost grateful to to have what he has, which like you know, there's 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 a niceness in that, I suppose you could say, but equally it's kind of like he's been forced into something that is appalling. He can't return home for fear of debts that he owes to the village and he can't afford to and all these other things. And, you know, you sit here and then we're all going to tune into the World Cup final on Sunday. And we're all going to watch either Messi fulfill destiny, if you listen to the media, or Kylian Mbappe be crowned the next big thing. Well, he's already the next big thing, but you know what I mean. And it's outside that stadium. There's an Uber driver. I haven't seen his wife and kids in three years hoping to pick up a fare after the match that might help send money home. But it's also as well, Phil, like your your want of a better term, your monologue there about that, which I loved and it was very passionate. And it's almost a story of, you know, like you said, Ellis Island, immigrants and stuff like that. But like if you're looking, I unfortunately think you were saying there, if people don't understand that or get that, we haven't done our job, as in you guys, the print journalists, print journalists, right? And I'm trying to work out how to articulate it because closer to home, we have the current issue with Ireland taking in immigrants. We have protests in East Wall. We protest them from Oi, um, you know, with, with taking in more immigrants. I mean, it's unfathomable to me that Irish people would protest against immigration coming in when, uh, like you said, that was us a couple of decades ago, maybe 10 decades ago. That was us. You know, the great hunger. We had to go Ellis Island, New York, Australia. You know, we're still doing it. Still, our generation, my generation, 2006, 2008, all legged Australia, New Zealand. Some have come home, some are still there. I mean, there's no empathy for that, especially if you're a different color, especially if you're brown, especially if you're black. You know, I don't know. I'm finding it quite unsettling uh, recently, even when you're talking, even if you're looking from afar. And I mean, if you're scroll, if you're doomsday scrolling on Twitter or Facebook and you see people, you know, from your area or people that you might have grown up with, or acquaintances and they're believing all this. They're believing the whole, you know, Ireland gave out 100,000 PPS numbers. What about this? What about that? What about this? Do you know? So you're saying there, if the message doesn't come home about the World Cup and about, as Danny put it brilliantly, we're all going to be watching a World Cup final, but outside that stadium, picking up fans in an Uber is a guy that hasn't seen his family in three or four years. There's more than one guy that's in that situation. 100%. So... I just don't know how we get the message. I just don't know. You see Buzz O'Neill working tirelessly with the East All for East East Wall for All. Mm. You know, stuff like that is brilliant. But is it working? I'll ask you, I'll answer that with a question if I may, Graham, right? You Can see you what, I, I probably didn't articulate it right. No, 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 you, no, you did point? you did it absolutely brilliantly. And and I, I'll give you a take on that in one second, but I want to answer you with a question, right? Can you tell me the name? of a single migrant worker in Qatar? No. 
There you go. This is where we have failed, right? Because we haven't managed to package their stories and make them human. We still see them as almost a distinct homogenous group of brown people whose personal stories aren't interesting, right? The reason I'm telling you about this man and, and his, because his personal story, and I can see that it's after having a great effect on Danny. And the only reason I'm not telling him more is because I don't want him to cry on the podcast again, because I know he gets awards out of it, but that's one thing, you know? But there's so many of those stories and, you know, without those personal stories, people will fail to understand because we don't see the individual. We don't see the humanity behind these stories. Right. So I can tell you that these lads are living six or eight men to a room. But the moment I tell you a name, then all of a sudden that person becomes human and you can no longer deny them that humanity. Right. But there's a whole complex which is built up around getting us to butt heads. With sorry, another, sorry, right? Phil. Sorry, Phil. Yeah. I, I can't deny that man's or woman or whatever is humanity. Yep. However, if you're talking to some of the uh, feral people that are protesting <laughs> in East Wall, yeah. if you say that that person's name is Muhammad, they shut down. Of course, right? that person's name. But, but like, the thing look is, at the dinghy situation in, in England. Yep. I mean, and the same, is, and the same thing that's been going on. Like. Yeah. And the same thing has been going on. If you read Sally Hayden's book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, you'll see what's behind this, right? But what, what is Mo, as I was saying there, it, it, the whole thing is built to keep us at each other's throats, right? It's, you don't want to, you're always told that, oh, if they get in here, well, then they're going to be taking something that you should have. And you mightn't have anything to begin with. So all of a sudden, there's a, this idea of competition between people, right? Lads, this is not a world in which anything is scarce, right? It's not a world in which anything is scarce. And if you go to the World Cup, you'll see that. There's beer everywhere that they can't sell. There's soft drinks from a certain sponsor. There's all sorts of stuff all over the place. There's plenty of food. The catering at the end of it, sometimes they used to come into the press box and they'd hand us out food there, you know, and I was going, why are you giving it to us? We're getting paid, you know, a per diem every day. We can afford these things, right? But the whole thing is set up to keep us fighting with one another and to think that me, what I need is important. My needs are, I need to be warm and I need to be safe, right? And when you start to instill fear into people, because all of these things come down to fear, right? A lot of what you see with QAnon in the States nowadays, and it's starting to seep into Irish politics and all grooming children and pedophiles and stranger danger and all these things. And what I'm trying to find when I go to these places, and this is why I'm not ashamed, not embarrassed that I went there in the end, Graham, because it proved to me that I was right, okay? These people are not to be feared. In, in They actually called them, in, in Doha, they called them the bachelors, right? There's so many single men there working, you know? And you'll often hear that, oh, you know, young men of military age, you know, Qatar was crying out for those people because they were Pretty the ones who killed yeah, exactly. Where they vetted, et cetera, et cetera, you know. But this is but they brought them over there as, as labor. They were fine to do that, that job for a euro an hour, you know. And this is the thing that as long as we allow ourselves to be split by that, you know, and we've had this conversation many times about media. When you see something in the media and you ask yourself, why this and why now? Right. So what I feel is the key to this, right? is realizing, I mean, I, I had it, and geez, I may even cry now myself after giving out to Danny, right? But I was thinking of that man, uh, three and a half years without seeing his wife or child. Now, Dan, recently married, still enjoying, you know, the, the, the flush of, of recent marriage there. Can you imagine not sleeping beside your wife for three and a half years or holding your child? Now, can you imagine that times two and a half million migrant workers or maybe one million of them who are, who are fathers and haven't seen their children? May never see them again, lads. If they fall from something that kind of can you? And, can, and sorry to, to cut across. You're, you you're preaching to the priest. But but this is it. But this is the thing. If we realize, and all our conversations end up back at the same thing, lads. There is literally no difference between us 
and them when it comes to flesh and blood and being men in this case talking who just want the best for those around them, right? But we're prohibited almost from feeling those feelings and from putting words on those feelings by a society that expects us to consume and to look to our own interests first, right? And the moment we stop that, right? The moment you look above the Grand Theft Auto skyline and you see the clear blue skies over the desert, you start to think to yourself, this is fucking bigger than all of us. Right. It's bigger than what car I have parked outside my office here. It's bigger than whatever this microphone cost me or whatever this hoodie I'm wearing cost me or whatever Graham's hat cost him. None of that matters. Right. The only thing that matters is creating a society, not just in Ballybrack or in Stockholm or anywhere else, creating a global society where as many people can thrive as much as possible for as long as possible. And everything else we do is entirely irrelevant. And Danny, that behoves us then to go and do something about it, right? Whether it be speaking up on this podcast is a great contribution to it because you have a fantastic coterie of listeners here who will hear this and who maybe might go and do something. But to do it in our daily lives, to say, do you know what? I'm not going to go to that event or I'm not going to support this or I'm not going to pay for Sky Sports or I'm not going to pay for whatever else it is. And to do it in a vocal way and say, look, we have to be better. This is what I'm prepared to do, right? Not you should do this, we all did. No, no, this is what I'm prepared to do and to lead by example in all these things because we can all influence each other in that way. And that's why I'm so delighted that you give me the platform to speak to the people who listen to this podcast and to try to sort of, you know, to, to present this idea for them because I can't do everything and you can't do everything, Dan. And Graham, you can't do everything. But together, we can all do something to improve this. If that be writing to Infantino, taking the piss out of him on Twitter, or, you know, making a contribution to a charity now as we're coming up to Christmas, or maybe even, you know, not watching the penalties at the end of this inevitable World Cup final, but just to do something to say to these people that we heard you, we know you're there, we appreciate, we see you. Because the difference in the hotel, I noticed, Graham, when you look at people, there was a guy called Marnell who used to make our coffee every morning, right, from the Philippines, worked six days a week, 12 hours a day, from 11 at night until 11 in the morning. He'd clock off after making uh, coffee for people like me for five, four, five, six hours and preparing the breakfast and that. One day he wasn't there and he came back the following day and he had his little name by John. I said, Marnell, did you enjoy our day off? And the chap's face lit up, right, because somebody saw him. He wasn't just a bloke that everybody's going, here, where's my fucking Americano? You know, because he got plenty of that as well, right? But all of a sudden he felt seen, right? Now again, there's two and a half, 2.7, 2.8 million of that bloke there. And yet they're never seen. They're just not seen as people. And this is the thing. And that extends then. You don't have to go to Doha to do this, lads. You can go to O'Connell Street. You can go to where the Muslim sisters of Ada are pass passing out food and soup and sleeping bags to people. You can see those people in the doorways as you're doing your Christmas shopping on Grafton Street or around Stevens Green or on Henry Street. You can look at them. You can give them a smile and give them a nod and just let them know that, yeah, brother, sister, I see you. And let that be the start of it. I think there's, there's still a long, long way for us to go. It's, it's easy to say there's no them, there's only us. And it's a great idea. But right now, it is just an idea because there's very much an us and them that exists in the world. And it's 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 unfortunate because you made the point, Phil, you know, and, and Meadow, you echoed it as well, that piece around th these people are us. A couple of decades removed, but they are us. And as, I would challenge anyone who listens to this podcast, we all know somebody who has gone abroad and set up life elsewhere. We all know somebody who, you know, had a, a relative who left years and years ago and they went over to America or they went to Australia or even over to England and they were sending money home to help their family because there was nothing here. And that was their only option. And that's the world we're we live in. What are the ladies like? 
things have got better for us, but there's huge pockets of the world where it hasn't got better. And this this World Cup, as you said, Phil, this this is what the legacy should be. That we see this, we see those people, we recognize it, and we find a way to do something about it. My fear, my fear is that come Monday, when the headlines are out and people have read their sports section and the highlights are finished, Qatar becomes a memory of nothing. That we stop talking about it. There's no more spotlight to be shown. There's no more reason to discuss it. It's gone. It's done. Move along, lads. Mm-hmm. What happens to those people at that point? At least right now, somebody's talking about them. But we're, we're talking about them. You don't have all the answers, and that's absolutely fine. Sometimes the conversation leads to the answers. But come Monday, when the conversation stops, what becomes of those people? The great thing about it is, Dan, that once you know something, you can't unknow it, right? Mm. And a few thousand people that are listening to this conversation, they can walk away from this and go, he's a fucking idiot, and Mero's an idiot, and Danny's an idiot, and I'm never listening to this again. But they'll never unhear what we've spoken about today. What they choose to do with it is entirely up to themselves, right? Good few years ago here, there's a, brilliant, there's a couple of brilliant musicians over here. One of them is Brian Bournes from County Wicklow. And we organized a Samhain festival around Halloween to explain to the Swedes that actually we fucking own this. It's not the Americans own it at all, right? But we used to do it for uh, for the homeless in Sweden because as you can imagine, there's no great crack in minus 14 if you're homeless in this country. And one night a lad called Keith Hearn from Waterford got up and he started playing his acoustic guitar and he did a version of The Man in the Mirror by Michael Jackson, right? And it can sound as cheesy as you like, but that song is about changing yourself first before you expect anybody else to change, right? And this is where these things happen, right? The best time to start doing this would have been when Qatar sort of applied to host the World Cup back in 2008, 2009, right? The next best time to start changing these things is today, right? And that's on us. That's, that's a conscious choice that we can make, that we can choose to look at the world in a different way. We can choose to see the people on the news as being invaders or as people who need protection. We can always choose, not to, we can't change the world the way it is, but we can change how we respond to it and how we behave in it, right? And for every one of us that changes, for every one of us that stops using the word faggot and starts using the word gay person, right? Something small changes. And then maybe... Danny stops using that word or uses a different word and Graham stops using that word. And this is how change happens, right? And it does. We can look at this and we can say, right, this is fucking far too big. But the way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time, lads. And I can guarantee you one thing. We may try and try and try and go to our graves never having changed a thing. We might have tried absolutely everything possible. But I'll tell you what definitely won't happen is if we fucking sit in our hands and never do anything, then change is definitely not going to happen. And at least this way we have a choice. And at least when we reach the end of our day, is and we get to meet our maker at the end of it we can say look i did my fucking best right and to you know that's the only thing that we can ask for is to be able to put our head in the pillow at night and say did i try to make this world just a little bit better today than what it was when i got up this morning and i swear to god i'll commit to anybody now that i'll try to do that every day for the rest of my life and there will be days when i don't manage it and there'll be days when i fuck up and i say the wrong thing and everything else like but i will never let that leave me after what i've seen over here Phil, before we um, let you go, as you said, you cover women's football and it would be remiss of me not to bring up um, the statement on Saturday or Wednesday evening uh, last from about um, women's football in America, which named Ireland women's national team coach Vera Pau. Quite, um, depending on how you look at it, I know the reaction to Twitter hasn't been kind of, it's kind of been meh, but it's, it's quite skating. Yeah, I mean, it seems that the FAR... Or is it? Had, 
Yeah, well, from what I've seen, Graham, I saw the statement and I was a little bit disappointed in it, right? Not that I think that, you know, Vera's the worst person in the world. I don't. But there's a, there's a way of dealing with these things. And also, that's another one of these things that we need to change, right? I It takes an awful lot for people in sport to speak out about mistreatment, about bullying, about eating disorders, right? And I would have liked to have seen those people treated with more respect, right? So rather than just saying, well, Vera's denied it, so it didn't happen, I would have rather see a situation whereby they said, look, we're going to take some time, we're going to talk to her about it, et cetera, et cetera, right? Because the other thing is that, you know, um, Vera was there at the time. People made complaints. She was named in that particular report and the Houston Dash as a club apologised for her behaviour at the time, right? If they felt the need to do that, well, then something must have happened. But then, it, like I would say that maybe Vera has changed immensely as a person since then. One would hope that anything that she may have said or done then doesn't happen with the current Irish squad, but then we don't know. So I would have liked to have seen a much more sensitive handling of it as well, because... When something like this happens, and it's often that thing about, you know, when it comes to believing women, when they speak about sexual assault, when they speak about discrimination, that our first response should never be to say something. It should always be to listen. And that's the part that I feel that the FAI have never been good at, right? They, yeah. as, soon, as soon as something comes up, they go, we have to get a statement out. We have to do something. And sometimes the best thing to do is to say We'll get back to you. We need to consider this more. We need to dive into this. We need to talk to Vera. We need to talk to Houston Dash. We need to talk to, we need to read, you know, every file that went into that report and see what this was. And then we'll have something to say about it. Because what I would love to see is the FAI coming out and saying, this happened. We're not going to comment on Vera's hand act or part in that. You know, maybe we don't agree with, with the conclusions of it. But that said, we will do absolutely everything in our power to make sure that footballers, and in particular female footballers, are well looked after and that this is a safe space for them to carry out their sport in. And I felt that was lacking so many times with the FAI. There's a, you get the feeling that they're kind of covering their arse a little bit. They don't want yeah. to say something they might get sued for and that. And again, that's one of those things where there's a sort of um, a moral obligation to be honest in that. And it comes down to protecting people. Vera has to be protected. Absolutely. Because let's face it, she has her own story from her time in the Netherlands as well, you know. But that we have to find a way that we can be grown-ups about that. Not just that everybody can save face, but that we make sure that whatever it is, that in the future that these things can never happen again. But it's like what Dan McDonald said. It's like the FEI had a, a moment of urgency over the Wembley video gate. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. You know, and then with the Vera Pau thing, it was almost, it almost read like nothing to see here. We're looking forward to the World Cup. And and the thing with the, the girls there was, I mean, you know, I hate to use the expression throwing them under a bus, but they pretty much did that. You know, Chloe was out the following yeah. day doing interviews on, on Sky News and that kind of thing. And they were expected to fend for themselves with little or no preparation. And in this instance, but that's that's the thing of power as well. I mean, somebody said to me, of, you know, about the whole thing of, you know, I mean, could they afford to sack her if needs be? Could they afford a legal action for Vera Powell? Is that what steered it, you know? And Surely I don't they think knew this so. was coming, Phil. They did. Everybody in football knew this was coming, Graham. You know, so this has been, you know, everybody knew that this uh, investigation was happening. I had completely forgotten about the fact that the report was going to be published because I was traveling and trying to settle back in and that, you know. And then it appeared in the inbox. Where, oh, shit. Yeah, that was happening as well. And, you know, to be honest, Mary Hannigan, I didn't entirely agree. She wrote a very good piece in the Irish Times today. I don't agree with the sort of, you know, the, the angle of it, but I can see why it makes for very good reading. 
Vera, in terms of the things that I have heard and seen in women's football and what players have told me about what's, what's happening in clubs, and I don't want to relativize any of the people who have given testimony to the Houston Dash about this process, but I would place Vera on the sort of the more minor end of the scale compared to some of the things I, I've heard. And again, I'm not trying to minimize anything that happened to anybody in that way, you know, but at the same time, the experiences that those women had have to be taken seriously. If women are saying that they ended up with eating disorders in whole or in part because of the way somebody acted towards them, we have to take that seriously to ensure that never happened again. Fear is a fine football coach and a fine person, right? But we still, like, so am I, so are you there. But if one of us fucks up, we have to be open to somebody saying to us, look, you screwed up there, Phil. And I ha- do you remember it happened recently, Graham? I ended up saying something very clumsy to you that was very insulting. And I only realized afterwards and I had to apologize to you for it. And I can't be above that because if I'm going to hold other people to account and I had to be the one to say that to you because you were kind enough to let it go. And I went, hang on a second, Graham. That's not okay for me to say what I said to you, right? And if I demand that from other people, I have to demand that from myself. And that's what we need there. Now, I don't want to see Vera sacked. I don't want to see her thrown under the bus, but I I do want to be sure that if something happens, that it cannot possibly happen again. Yep. It's a good point. It's a great point. It's, um... At the end of the day, it's a credible report with credible witnesses. And I think the disappointing thing of it was that she didn't want to cooperate with it. Yeah. I mean, those things... It's very difficult. And we do have a situation now where you'll have sort of, you know, uh, council coming into meetings and that kind of thing. And people come with prepared statements as if they're going in front of a doll committee or the Senate or whatever, you know. And that to me is not very helpful because, again, you know, what we've been talking about here today, conversation and humanity are the two big things. You know, we need to be able to talk about things, not just the positive things and not just the things where I'm always right or where you're always right, but about my flaws and your flaws and be honest about them. Because, again, we can't find a a way forward until we can sort of identify what can be changed. And None of us is perfect, not the FAI nor Vera nor me nor any of us here, you know, and we have to be open to that as well because, you know, again, the change begins with us. Absolutely. And that's a great note to end it on, I think, the change begins with us. Philip, thanks very much for, uh, one, making the time for us, two, changing your train. Do appreciate that. And and three, uh, sharing the, the realities of what you what you found in Qatar and your thoughts and everything else afterwards. Um. It'll, it'll, it'll stick with me for a while, I think. Uh, a lot of food for thought in it, but it's these are the conversations that have to be had. And I hope to hear more of these kind of conversations from elsewhere in, in the wake of the World Cup, but we'll wait and see. Um, congratulations on the Global Gale. I'm totally enjoying it. There's been some great chats. Um, and yeah, I can't, can't wait to see what to do next, man. It's always interesting. What, what I'll be doing next is I'll be holding up Merrow's wheelchair when we go to see Christy Moore on the 3rd of January as well. With a couple of global January, gale moves. January, I keep telling you. I know. I just, look, once I get there, I'm all yours. You can do what you want with me there. But with a couple <laughs> of global gale mugs for the boys as well. Lads, thanks, <laughs> thanks for having me. As I said, you're my favourite two people in the whole podcasting world. And your audience is just magnificent. They're handsome. They're beautiful. They're intelligent. And they they deserve the two of more than anything else. Yeah, you stayed at the pizza as well. Go away. Well, He's only a bollocks. <laughs> uh, listen, thanks very much for listening and uh, check out Phil on Twitter and Airman in Stockholm uh, as a Global Gale Origin Street and podcast as well uh, Mero uh, this, yeah, as I said it's a double header and then there's the business one in the bag that's coming out in a couple of days so uh, there's not much to club or to say look lads until next time Mero is full of hearts